Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. People like you here tonight to support what God is doing. Amen. How many, uh, how many are glad about what Christ is doing in our lives tonight? It is a wonderful blessing to see uh, uh, people change, people grow. As the Lord says, from glory unto glory, into his likeness and his image tonight. We are so grateful to have faithful people, long-term faithfulness uh, over the years. I'm amazed to see how God uses that, and I want to encourage you tonight. The blessing of faithfulness over the long term. We're going to open up our Bibles tonight to the book of Exodus and chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 tonight. I was inspired uh, to start a new series as uh, we were going through our daily Bible reading program. You, uh, you're going to hear me keep talking about that because it's an inspiring thing to have a habit of not only reading the Bible, but really trying to understand it on a daily basis and asking the Lord to use those daily Bible readings to, uh, to help us and to speak to us. So as uh, our Bible reading plan took us recently through the book of Exodus and uh, once again hearing these amazing stories, I was curious about, uh, you know, I, I have some kind of a curious mind. And so I, you know, if I read something or I, uh, I go through a story and I recognize that there's something in there that I haven't taken the time to fully understand yet, it, uh, it starts a journey for me, and that was the case with this particular scripture and these particular stories. And so we're starting a, uh, a new series as of tonight that's going to go each Sunday night for the next few weeks, and, um, and I'm going to reveal the title in just a moment. But how many understand tonight that anything that is of value in life, cannot be obtained without a great cost. I'm going to say that again because it took me a long time to think of that. Anything that is of great value cannot be obtained without a great cost. Everybody hates the spoiled brat that thinks they deserve expensive toys and goodies. Maybe you've seen one of those people. Maybe you have one that lives in your house. There is a whole generation that has a bad reputation now of being the cultural spoiled brat that think they deserve some kind of financial stability, deserve a corner office, deserve prominence and fame, but not willing to put in the work to get there. Hopefully, life will teach these spoiled brats 
that the world doesn't owe them anything, right? And if they think that they are special, they are either delusional, stupid, or both. The truth is tonight that anything that is of great value cannot be obtained without a great cost. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean. Everybody uh, understands that diamonds are a girl's best friend. I bought a, a diamond for my wife on, her fifth, on our fifth anniversary. And uh, that diamond that she's wearing on her finger is now 15 years old. It's, it's going to be our 20th anniversary soon. I might have to get another one. Doggone it. But those diamonds don't come from nowhere. A diamond is nothing more than a fancy hunk of coal that has been under intense heat and pressure for thousands of years. And only then a diamond can emerge. Gold. The thing that holds the diamond in place, right? Some of you might have gold jewelry on even tonight. They say that the amount of gold in the entire world is less than the cubic area of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. All the gold in the world could fit into an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and that's why it is so precious. That's why it's so expensive. It's a limited resource. That's why there are these crazy television shows of these insane people who live in Alaska and spend six months of the year digging in the ground just to get a little bowl full of it because that little bowl full of gold flakes is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Anything that is of great value cannot be obtained without great cost. Some of us want to have a good marriage. But how many know that a good marriage doesn't come easy? It comes through years of difficult conversations, humbling ourselves, compromise, not blowing up over every little thing. You know, marriage is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But a good marriage is not something that automatically happens. There has to be a price that husband and wife are willing to pay. How about children? We've got parents of children here in this place. We all want to see our children grow up to become successful in life and productive as a citizen of our nation and of our world and for the kingdom of God. We want to see that. But how many know there's a cost involved? There's a cost involved in raising children into successful adults. There's dirty diapers. There's bad attitudes you have to deal with. There's discipline. There's instruction. And by the way, you have to feed them too. <laughs> Nothing of great value comes without a cost. Every Fortune 500 company that is on the list, not one of them got there in one year or two. The reason they're on the Fortune 500 is because after decades of innovation, decades of research and development, decades of leadership, and decades of improving the lives of their customers, only then can a company stake the claim 
on that list of Fortune 500. It's a wonderful spot to have, but there's a cost. Not every company gets there, do they? In fact, half of all businesses fail within five years. Why? Because not everybody will pay the cost. It's the same for financial stability. If we want to be financially stable and have money in the bank and we want to have uh, some comfort and ease and not having the bill collectors knock on our door every five minutes, you know, that doesn't come overnight. You, very few people will win the lottery. For most people, financial success comes simply through self-discipline, saying no to every whim and desire in the grocery line, saying no, no, we can't afford that vehicle now, no, I can't afford that trinket, no, I'm going to wait. And if we will have that, eventually, eventually we can have something of great value, but there's a cost. And that's the idea behind this sermon series. I believe tonight God has great things in store for us. I believe that God has a promised land for His people, for His church, for all of us individually. God has promises that He intends to deliver to every one of us tonight. We are children of Abraham. We are children of blessing. We are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. We have an inheritance. Somebody said amen. Those are things that are of incredible value. But tonight, what something that many people do not realize is that there's also a cost involved. There's also a price to pay. And if we want to partake in the promises, if we want to walk into the promised land one day, we have to understand that there is a fight waiting for us. There is a price we must be willing to pay. And that's what we're going to see here in Exodus chapter 3. And this is the account of Moses at the burning bush. But right here in the midst of it, God is giving a vision for his people. He is telling Moses what his intention is for the people of Israel to bring them out of slavery and to deliver them to the promised land. But there's something so amazing here that I want to preach about. It's going to take me five or six weeks to get through it. And I want you to hold on to your seats because there's some powerful lessons here tonight. Let's read together. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Listen to the language. Bring them up from that land into a good and a large land. Sounds pretty good so far. Coming up out of bondage, out of slavery, coming up to a good land, a large land. What else do we see? A land flowing with milk and honey. So far, so good, right? Man, I wish that was the end of the sentence. God's going to bring them out of slavery, going to bring them out of Egypt, going to deliver them through miracles to a good place, full, large, the land flowing 
with milk and honey, but then in my Bible there's a comma. And it says these words. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. What are they doing in my promised land, God? Why are they polluting your promise? And so this is a, this is a, uh, a sermon series that I want to title, Defeating Your Ites. Because every one of us has some ites that are hanging out in the promised land that God it wants to give to us. And this first message is titled, Enemies in the Promised Land. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come by the blood of Jesus. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I'm praying tonight that our hearts will be open to hear the word that you want to speak to us. Lord, help us to realize, God, you are a God of promise. You are a God of destiny and purpose. But in your destiny and purpose, God, there are enemies that remain in the land. And God, I'm praying, give us strength and courage to confront those enemies. And tonight, give us grace in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. So enemies in the promised land. I am so amazed at this scripture and uh, confirmed in so many other places that God wants to bring the people into a good land, a large land, a land that flows with milk and honey. This is a euphemistic way of describing a fruitful land, a land that will be a blessed place, that their crops will grow, that their flocks and herds would thrive, that their families would be blessed, flowing with milk and honey, a land described by incredible blessing. We know that this is true. Later on, when they would send spies into this land, right? Before they go and attack, they're going to send some spies into the land, and they go and spy it out to see what kind of blessing lays before them in this so-called promised land. And as uh, Pastor Alvarez mentioned, Uh, In his revival service, they came back carrying among themselves a, 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 a group of grapes that was so heavy and so bountiful that two men had a stick on their shoulders and they both had to carry the weight of this incredible grapevine that was bursting and overflowing with these beautiful grapes. They brought it as an example to show This is an amazing place. Truly, everything God said about it is accurate. It is a good land. It is a large land. It is a land flowing with milk and with honey. There is bounty there. There is promise there. God's will is for us to be there. But there's a problem. In the middle of that promised land, occupying it, listen, that land was not unoccupied. It was a land filled with enemies. And if you've read through the book of Exodus and then through the book of Deuteronomy and on and on through the the Levitical law and even into Joshua, it is the story of how God's people are entering into the promise. But how many of you ever noticed that it is a book, especially Joshua, is a book full of conflict. 
before they go in, it's internal conflict. It's God working the Egypt out of them. And then from Joshua going forward, it becomes a story of external conflict. That they're going from city to city, and each place is a battle. To take the promised land, it's not like they're just going to walk in and somebody's going to roll out a red carpet. Welcome, O Israel. Welcome, people of God. We're so glad you're here. No. Every step that they took was challenged by their enemies. And my point for you tonight is, yes, I believe God has promise for us. Yes, I believe that God has destiny for us. But if you watch Christian television, that's the only part you'll hear of. You're not going to hear about the battles that are going to be necessary for you to fight in order to take your promised land. You are not going to have a successful Christian life unless you're also willing to fight a few battles. How many with me? You are not going to have a holy life set apart from the world unless you fight a few battles with your flesh. Hello? You are not going to have a financially blessed life unless you fight a few battles against mammon. You are not going to have everything that God has for you until you're willing to take a few steps and pull out a few swords and say, you know what? I am taking what God has for me and my family and my church. That is the story of Exodus and Joshua. So let's think for just a moment about the first enemy that is mentioned residing in the promised land. And truthfully, this first one that is mentioned, the Canaanites, is kind of like the umbrella under which all of the rest exist. All right? So Canaan was the first, and from him came all of the rest, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Termites. Just making sure you're paying attention. So who is Canaan? Why, then, is it such a bummer for the people of God to have to confront Canaan? And what is it that we can learn from this? In order to understand all of these things, we have to go back to the backstory. Let's fill in a few details. I hope I don't lose you tonight. Let's talk about Canaan. Canaan, the Bible says, was a man. He was a grandson of Noah. Everybody knows Noah. Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood has taken place. Noah has some sons. How many sons does he have? He has three sons. The name of Noah's sons in verse 18, Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham, the Bible says this, very interesting. Ham was the father of Canaan. So first of all, I have a question. Why is Canaan mentioned here? I don't think he was on the ark. The Bible says that there were only... Uh, there were only eight people. There was Noah and his wife. There was his three sons and their wives, eight people. So in other words, they came out from the ark being just uh, Noah and his three sons 
and from those eight people, they begin to repopulate the earth. So why is Canaan mentioned right here? It's so strange that again and again in this chapter, Canaan is mentioned again and again. It's interesting because Canaan is not the only grandson that Noah had. He had many grandsons from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But it's only Canaan that gets mentioned here in Genesis. And then later he's mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. What Were all the other grandsons insignificant? Or is the Word of God trying to make us notice something that we need to learn? Why is Canaan prominent in Genesis 9 and Genesis 10? The grandson of Noah. We can answer that question by looking later in this chapter about a strange thing that happened between Noah and his son Ham, also the father of Canaan. Now this is a story that you've probably read and you probably had a big question mark in your brain and scratched the side of your head and said, that's weird, and then kept reading. For years, I read this story, and I did that, and, uh, uh, and I'm grateful that I have a rabbi, <laughs> because there are some interesting details that ancient Jewish wisdom explains here that fills in some blanks and gives us some understanding about why Canaan is so prominent here. Genesis 9, something must have happened between Ham and Noah that caused such a rift that Noah, interestingly, turns his guns, so to speak, on his own grandson. Listen to the, the, uh, the curse that Noah puts on his grandson, Canaan. This is in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside, verse 25. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Shem, and may Canaan, my grandson, be servant to Shem, my son. So again, weird story, right? What is all of this about nakedness and cursing of Canaan? And it's kind of a weird story. And that is because, number one, we don't understand Hebrew. Number two, we don't have a rabbi. (laughs) Now, let me just give a disclaimer. What I'm about to say is not laid out word for word in the Bible, so you can take it or leave it. I have found that this information is helpful to understand what this story is about. So if you think that I'm full of bunk, then you can just erase this part of the sermon. But um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin gives an explanation that is something that has been explained through uh, traditional rabbinical schools through the generations that fills in the gaps and causes it to make sense. And it answers two main questions that I have about this story. Number one, why is there so much emphasis on Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, even when he's not involved in the story at all? Number two, what was so bad about Ham's actions and why did it cause Noah to proclaim a curse that would affect Canaan and all of the generations that followed? Ancient Jewish wisdom fills in the blanks. Now I want you to imagine yourself as one of the sons of Noah. 
one of the three. Remember, eight people have come out of the ark. Noah and his wife, three sons and their wives. And now the rest of human civilization has been completely destroyed. There is an entire world that is waiting to be conquered, right? The land is open, it is free. And now there are three sons. Noah, who is the old man, is going to die pretty soon. And three sons now are going to spread their influence over the rest of the earth. Ham was a son of Noah. And as one of three sons, of course, he had an inheritance for one-third of the entire world. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? A third of the world at your fingertips. And Ham began to think about his inheritance. He wanted to desperately take the territory that he thought that he deserved. But perhaps he started listening to Noah and Mrs. Noah talking to each other. And you know, back in those days, you could live for about eight or nine hundred years and still be fruitful and productive citizens. Noah gets off the boat. He's only like, what, six hundred years old when that took place. Maybe Noah and Mrs. Noah started talking about having a baby. Well, Ham did not like this idea at all. Because he says to himself, if that baby is a son then all of a sudden my inheritance is shrinking. My inheritance is going from one-third to one-fourth. And if we're talking about the entire world, that's a lot of land. And I don't want to see that happen. So what the, what the rabbinical tradition teaches is that one night, Ham happens to come upon his father who is drunk. By the way, good idea not to get drunk. There's nobody around to, to uh, arrest him or anything. But, you know, Abe, uh, Noah here gets so drunk that he's passed out and naked. That's really drunk. And Ham stumbles upon this situation, and he says, this is my opportunity. And rabbinical tradition says that he did something to his father to cause him to not be able to have any future sons. That's pretty serious. And this mutilation was unnoticed at the time, but when Noah awakes from his drunken stupor and finds out what has happened to him, no wonder he's so upset. This explains to me a couple of things. Why did the curse fall on Canaan? Because Canaan was Ham's fourth son. Because he prevented Noah from having a fourth son, He says, the curse is going to fall on your fourth son, Ham. It answers to me why this is such a serious crime and why the Bible mentions it. And so I think the Bible is being euphemistic and trying to cover up what really was a truly heinous crime. And it tells us why there is such a curse on the people of Canaan. Because when you study out the lineage of the Canaanites you will find that all of the descendants of Canaan produce nothing but enemies of God's people. Genesis 10, the next chapter, verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, all of the ites that stood in the way of God's people. 
They came from the line of Noah's grandson, Canaan. Now, why am I explaining all of this to you tonight? Why do we need to know this? Because it was these people, the people of Canaan, from this family line, they were the ones who found their way up to the north, to the valley that today we know as Israel or Philistine, that area that is right there next to the Mediterranean. It is them who settled in the promised land. It is those enemies of God's people. And it was that same land that one day God spoke to Abraham and said, I'll give that land to you. And it was Moses that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and says, now it's time for me to deliver this people so that they will eventually go to that promised land. And it was Joshua that God strengthened him to step foot into that land for the first time. I want to tell you that that land was occupied by enemies. And that's the point that we need to take away from this tonight. I'm setting up all this backstory so you can understand why it was such a fight. God promises, God's promises, rather, will always set us up for a fight. God's promises. God has promised us things, hasn't he? He is a good father, and he makes promises to us. But it's just like the family business and the, 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 the father who has owned the business for years now wants to pass his business family line into the care of his son or his daughter, right? And to pass that family business is not just a blessing. It's also a burden, isn't it? Because now all of a sudden there's responsibilities. See, I believe God promises us great things But we have to understand in order to receive those things, in order to take those things, there will be a fight involved. Some examples. Job. We know the story of Job. If you read the last chapter and that was all you read, that would be a great story. Job got blessed with a double portion. Job uh, remarried his wife and had 20 sons and daughters. Go Job. Not only that, but he recovered all of his wealth and double. He doubled his previous wealth that he had lost. And you're like, man, Job's doing pretty good. But if you hadn't read the previous 41 chapters, you would have found out that that blessing was a fight. 39 horrible chapters of accusation and pain and physical torment and loss and grieving his sons and daughters and even his wife. You you read 39 long, difficult chapters and you read one where he gets the promise. Jesus. If all you read was the story of the resurrection, you'd be like, man, that was a great story. He rose from the dead, amazing, powerful, wonderful. But you have to go back and remember that that resurrection would not have been possible unless first he was betrayed by his own people, betrayed by Judas with a kiss, that he was falsely accused in a kangaroo court, that he was beaten and mocked and crucified, crown of thorns, hung on a cross, 
naked for all to see. Man, just skip that chapter. Jeez. Let me hear about the resurrection. I'm saying all of this to remind you tonight that yes, God has promises for you, but they are not without a fight. They are not without a struggle. God calls us to promised land, but I guarantee there will be a struggle on the way there. This sermon series tonight, this message is intended to be an introduction to tell you about some of those enemies. Because what we don't realize is that all of these people have names. Canaanite, he has a name, Canaan, that means something. We have the, uh, the Hittites. That they have a name that tells us another enemy. The Amorites have a name that means something. And so each one of these messages is going to be revealing one of the enemies that we have to confront on our way in to the promised land. And I want to, co- to finish the story about Canaan. Canaan tonight represents one enemy that we will all face as we enter into the promised land. I want you to stick with me tonight. The enemy of Canaan, and he is the mother or the father of all the other enemies. It was from this one man, and we, you, I just explained the story of where he came from, why he was cursed. That how would the rest of his family see him as the one who inherited the curse of this terrible crime that his father had committed? How would the rest of the family view him now, right? Cast him out. No wonder he ran away far from the, the rest. So Canaan, when you think tonight, what was it that inspired such an evil attack on the patriarch Noah? What was it that inspired Ham to do such an evil thing? I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was mammon. It was greed. It was the desire, I don't want to lose that material wealth to some little brat that might get born from Mr. and Mrs. Noah. It was the idea of hanging on to material possessions. Canaan represents for us the enemy of mammon. When you look up his name and you study the meaning of his name, do you know what it means? It means a merchant, trader, or trafficker. It means someone who is only interested in the bottom line. It means it's the picture of those money changers in the temple. That Jesus came in and he saw them changing money and doing business in the temple and he got upset, man. Jesus, a gentle, meek and mild, whips to, he braids together a whip of cords. And he casts them out of the temple because this does not belong in the house of God. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The spirit of mammon. On the way to the promised land, I want to tell you every single one of us is going to confront Canaan, the god of mammon. The desire to increase the bottom line at every expense. 
Jesus said it like this, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot, everybody say cannot. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now I understand every single one of us, we have to deal with money. That's part of life. We have to pay bills. We have to have a place to lay our heads to sleep at night. We have to have transportation. We have to put food in the mouths of our children. But what we don't have to do is we do not have to serve the God of mammon. There is a big difference tonight between supplying for my family's needs and having a spirit of Canaan. I'm willing to kill. I'm willing to maim. I'm willing to mutilate so that I don't lose out on part of my blessing. Because of this love of money, this God of mammon, people have done wicked things. 2 Timothy 4, Paul speaks about a man named Demas. And he says that Demas had forsaken the apostle. How would you like your name to be forever engraved in Scripture? As someone who forsook the apostle Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. He loved this present world. In other words, he was more interested in the material blessing, in the material wealth, than in serving the Lord Jesus Christ and blessing the Apostle Paul. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, the God of mammon def- uh, will always demand our attention above the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Men have fallen into traps right here. Fallen into traps that have aborted them on their journey to the promised land. I have seen men serve and sacrifice to the God of mammon and fail to reach their promised land. Fail to enter in. On the way into your promised land, there will be an enemy standing there. There will be a city. And you know what his name is? Canaan. The God of mammon. The love of wealth and possessions. And you better defeat it. You better be willing to pull out your sword and say, No, I am a servant of God and God alone. And I'm going to defeat this enemy. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, am I saying that being rich is equal with being evil? Of course not. Sometimes God does make people rich because there are some people who can be rich and who still can be a blessing to the kingdom. I want to tell you, that's a very rare person. There are very few people who can have a lot of money without the money having them. 
Verse 10, sec, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greed and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is the God of mammon. It is the Canaan. It is the enemy that stands in the face of the promised land and says, no, you will not make it. The enemy will stand in your way. The enemy of greed and materialism. We live in a materialistic society. Somebody say amen. We live in a culture where your self-worth and your value is very closely tied to the things that you own and the number that is on your bank account. And it ought not be so here. God will give us wealth to use for His kingdom, but we must win the battle against mammon. I want to close with this last story. Isn't it amazing, as we're reading through the book of Exodus, I am always blown away by this account of the golden calf. It's almost comical if it wasn't so sad. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the top of the mountain having this incredible experience with God. God is giving him the ten rules for life, the two tablets. You know, you shall serve the Lord your God. These are laws that the people are commanded to live by, and if they will simply live by these laws, everybody would be happy. It's, it's so incredible that they want to take the Ten Commandments and remove them from the public square like don't murdering, not murdering people is so dangerous. Not stealing from people. How could we possibly encourage kids to not steal, right? And so uh, these are the, his people and he's writing them in stone on two tablets. Which... <laughs> And as this process is taking place, God turns to Moses and says, you know what's happening right now as we are speaking? Your people. It's funny, God calls them your people, Moses. Your people. On the way to the promised land, one of the greatest problems they dealt with was an idol made of gold. We know how Moses comes down with this false God and they were saying to this God, this is the God. That's... This is the God. This is Jehovah, the one who brought grinds it down to powder and makes them drink it. You're going to take your medicine. Turns upon brother. Father turns against son. And all those, uh, uh, all those offending parties are murdered. There's thousands of people that die because of this. But this is the part I want you to catch before we close tonight related to what I'm talking about this evening. Exodus 32, verse 21. Moses says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? In Moses' mind, he's thinking about his older brother Aaron. Did they tie you down or something? Did they put duct tape around your face? Did they force you? 
What did they do to you to make this happen, Aaron? So Aaron says, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, pointing fingers, you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's been up on the mountain for a month and a half. And so I said, Moses, uh, Aaron says, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And they gave it to me. I put it in the fire. And poof! Magically. Somehow this calf came out. I don't I can't explain it, Moses. Now either either this is some serious demonic stuff, which maybe it could be. Maybe it was a demon for forming an idol out of gold. I don't think so. I think Aaron's trying to cover the fact that he is the one who formed and fashioned every detail of that little golden calf. But here's what I want you to catch from this tonight. The enemy that stopped them from serving God was made of gold. Oh, and they were willing to pay the price, weren't they? It was because of this account and others that these people had to wander for 40 years. It was their love of stuff. It was their love of possessions. It was the the God that they could see and understand and they could feel it in their hand and they said, yes, this feels better. Listen, we, we, uh, we look at these ancient people and say how foolish they are for worshiping a piece of metal. I want to tell you, we do exactly the same thing. I was at a guy's house the other day installing a printer. I had his computer down for about half an hour. And while I... He got the printer working, everything. And I could see him sitting over here, and he's getting antsy. He wants to get back on his computer. And as soon as I'm done, I, I get up. He sits down, and he says, before I pay, I need to check something. You know what he's checking? Ameritrade.com. I need to make sure that my stocks, you know, that I'm not losing a lot of money. Half an hour. Now, he might not have a golden calf in his house, but I want to guarantee you, He has a God that he has made with his own hands. He has a God that he feels comfortable with. It has a few zeros at the end of it. I'm not saying that wealth is evil, but the love. You don't have to be rich to be in love with mammon. Some of the greediest people I know are poor people. Because they say to themselves, if only I could have a little more, then I'd be happy. If only I could work a few more hours and get a few more overtime. If only I could do a few more things. Oh, then my life would be better. It's interesting that people don't say, if I could only serve the Lord a little more. If only I could follow up on a few more people. If only I could outreach and win a few more lost souls for the kingdom. Oh, then I'd be happy. 
And that should reveal to us that this enemy is alive and well, standing in front of the promised land, saying, you will not enter until you defeat the God of Canaan, the love of money. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we bring the service to an end tonight and as God deals with our hearts. The hope tonight, the hope of the gospel is that we serve a God who is much bigger and much better than the God of Mammon. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vbph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.